Today on IFS Talks, we are welcoming back Cease Sykes. Cease has over 40 years of clinical experience working with individuals, couples, and families, specializing in recovery from trauma and addictive processes. She is a senior internal family systems trainer and travels internationally teaching, lecturing, and consulting. Cease has also developed a workshop retreat as part of an ongoing project to explore the personal narratives of therapists. Cease, thank you so much for being here with us today and joining us again on IFS Talks. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to it, actually. Great to be with you guys. So, welcome again, Cease. How have you been during these hard times, these pandemic days? It's been one year since we recorded our very first episode for this podcast. It was August 2019 before this pandemic started. How are you? Wow. Boy, so much has changed, hasn't it? As you guys know, the States is still struggling to get a, a handle on this. I live in Chicago in the city and uh, the city of Chicago and the, the state of Illinois where I live uh, have very progressive uh, governments and mm-hmm. we have been very safe and taken care of for a long time as have many places around the country and others are a little bit more unpredictable. But our federal government obviously is very unpredictable and it creates a lot of instability. I would mm-hmm. say I like my, what I always say in my consultation groups, we're not a page ahead, <laughs> us therapists with our clients. So our clients who are suffering with senses of isolation or unpredictability or anxiety, you know, we have the same. So I can certainly notice that I can get parts that get anxious about the future and anxious about what I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, I always have a big reunion with my family in the summer and we just didn't do it this year. Because uh, there's just too many. It was about 40. Wow. Mm-hmm. Large family. I have four brothers and a sister. And um, nieces and nephews. And then some babies coming. So we add up to over 40 people now. And we would never get together like that. And aren't getting together. So things that are that resource us. That our traditions Many families uh, are not able to pursue all the things. Summer is a time for that. We all thought summer would be better, and it isn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, so <clears throat> those kinds of things are losses. And so we're all navigating mm-hmm. losses all the time. Losses of resource, losses of the things that... Mm-hmm. Us. And the second thing that I'm navigating as a trainer is keeping trainings online and trying to create connection and safety in a Zoom format, which works a little better than we thought, which is good. Uh, But the responsibility for creating that feels like it's on me and then on the staff. And that's a different level of responsibility than just walking into the room and sitting down. So it has made things uh, more challenging. The second piece that's happening in our country is the upheaval 
around social justice issues, which is very important, very necessary. Totally. I'm very happy it's on the front burner of our country. I hope it stays there. Uh, and it's in part of our training. So helping people express and have safety around their strong feelings around injustice with their own personal journeys around that. Um, and how all every, how we can hold that as a community is, uh, and doing that on top of the pandemic, on top of being online. I think for me and other trainers, uh, especially when I feel, I take my responsibility seriously as, as in running a training and I, we, I feel it weighs on me. Uh, to have all that happen. And then at the same time, you know, teach in this different format. So it's been a lot and it feels like things just take more time. So sis. You used to do these workshops and retreats for therapists focused in therapists' lives yeah. that you call Heart Lesson of the Journey, a workshop retreat for therapists and counselors. You say, and I'm quoting you, life as a therapist is interesting, challenging, and deeply rewarding. We listen to narratives, we attune to emotions and offer support and guidance. Our own deep feelings and storyline remain firmly in the background. Yet, life is evolving for us too. So, sis, what do you mean life is evolving for us too? And why this interest in therapists and counselors' journey? What I would say, uh, Anibal, is that um, I have thought about this for maybe, I don't know, a, a number of decades, really. Mm -hmm. uh, but when I was in my 30s, my children were young, I found out more about my mother's childhood and her history. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> her... Uh, childhood was impacted by uh, sexual abuse in her family, incest. And I never knew that. Mm -hmm. But at the time I found that out, what I was doing for a living was being a therapist working with sexual abuse cases in the family. Wow. Wow. Trained family therapist mm. and had written a chapter and another article on denial and working with incest in the family. And this was impacting my, you know, and here this is. So uh, it's a powerful story as my mom ended up telling me about this. She had never talked about it before, never said it out loud. She never talked about it with anyone. With anyone. Wow. I said at one point in the conversation, I said, Mom, have you told Dad? She goes, your father? 
I said, yeah. She goes, why would I tell him? Art <laughs> stories <laughs> to tell. I said, well, mom, I don't want to be the only one who knows. Oh, well, all right, I'll tell him, but I don't know what he's going to say. <laughs> Amazing. But, you know, it speaks to the power, of course. I mean, I'm making a joke. I adore my mother. She was just, she was a piece of work. She was tough. But it, and she told me that about a, it was like a shape-shifting, about a thousand pieces of a puzzle that were floating around in my mind about my mom, about who she was, about how she was when she raised us, all came together. Mm -hmm. It all made sense. Yeah. And there's a piece that connects to some of my own history and childhood as well. So I thought, this is an accident? That of all the professions in the world, I happen to become a family therapist. Mm -hmm. And then in family therapy, this is an accident mm -hmm. that what I'm focusing on is sexual abuse in the family. At that time, I was working at an agency. We were a private agency that worked with uh, the government to provide psychotherapy to families who have been reported uh, for physical and sexual abuse of their children. So it can't hit closer to home. And yet, It was not something that I knew. She'd never talked about it. It had never been spoken of. Mm -hmm. So she and I continued conversations around that that were very rewarding and meaningful to me. And at the same time, um, it created a thought in my mind that I never let go of. Uh, I thought, am I the only therapist that has a story? Uh, how, how unconsciously, in, in, out of my awareness, do I pursue healing these issues yeah. uh, when this wound is in my own family? So I've thought about that for many, many years. And, you know, the second piece about it is as a trainer, and I've been... You know, I participated in my own training with IFS in 98 and then have been on staff or leading trainings, you know, for 20 years. I, all, I do hear therapist stories. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. I, that's therapists work on their own stuff in a training. And so I know we have powerful stories and just powerful stories to tell. So I finally decided I want to do a workshop around that and start making space for a therapist to talk about their own stories, whatever they happen to be, and, the, and bringing our own uh, attention to uh, some of the places inside us that we maybe know. I mean, everybody knows I was this role in my family. We all did genograms when we were in graduate school. But what do I, what do I not exactly know about how I came to be in a field Or as I like to say with great reverence, I spend half my week alone in a room with miserable people. <laughs> alone. <laughs> And it's my destiny. Right? And I like it.
And so I really think to shine that spotlight a little bit on, you know, how and how we're here and how we, what is it within us that gives us the gift of the ability for that? And uh, how do we sustain that gift and, you know, expand it? And then the third piece about it is we have a life. We choose partners, our partnerships work and they don't work. Uh, we get married, people die, people become ill. We have children, we don't have children. We adopt children, we uh, combine families. Uh, we work through our, our relationships with our family of origin, our siblings, our parents, our extended family. We have friendships. We navigate uh, all of life's illness, unpredictability, financial uh, stress. And so we're working on our own lives also. And we learn things from going through the, the wounds, the hurts, the confusion, the pain of life. And what do we do with that? And how are we processing that? And then how does that impact us when we're sitting in the room? What do, am, I the same, am I the same person as I was 35 years ago? Or have I hopefully changed a little bit? <laughs> I mean, I am my, who I am. I have, you know, but have I maybe grown a little? And in what way? And how does that impact our works? So I think also the journey of being a therapist, what's the journey? Like, you know, they have that, that story about uh, the London cab drivers, you know, they're sort of famous, you know, they have those beautiful black cabs that you can get and you feel like you're being in a limo. And these guys, you know, and the London streets are a thousand years old and they know them all. And they sit, and anyway, their brain, their visual spatial in their brain is, is very uh, overdeveloped or not overdeveloped, extensively developed uh, from having the streets of London in their head for all those years, what's the brain look like for a th psychotherapist? You know, <laughs> What's it like to sit in these rooms uh, and hear such intimate stories and to bear witness uh, to uh, trauma and also to be uh, in a position of guiding healing process? It's a very intimate world. And I say that sort of lightly, but I really mean how are we impacted? Mm -hmm. So these are all, I think, questions that I have sort of entertained uh, throughout the years. And so this workshop is to give us all some space to, um, to talk about that. See, so I remember uh, having a conversation with you. I think we were on a bus to the airport and just hearing about these workshops that you do and, and hearing your passion and enthusiasm for them was really inspiring. And I'm curious how, how the first workshop went, what it was like for you and for the therapist that participated. I'd done a few 
short workshops, but the first thing I did um, for of a retreat, shall we say, for three days, was actually with a group that was a, is a teleconference group. I've run teleconferences for many years, and this is a group though that they it happened over time that these same seven women from all parts of the U.S. have been on the phone together once a month on Mondays for two hours for five years. And, but we had never met. I had met most of them, but not all of them. And they had not met each other. So I thought, well, let's try this. So we all came together, met together for three days. And that was our first, uh, my first time. And so in a sense, we were not strangers to one another in any way. And yet there was much about each other's personal stories that we didn't know. Because what do we talk about? I mean, we talk about our parts and what's coming up regarding a client. But do we know each other's histories and our stories and our family of origin experience? We don't. So it was very, very powerful, very bonding, um, and very fascinating. Uh, And also, um, we were able, in this very direct way, to bear witness to events, losses, mental illness, uh, premature death, you know, losses of sibling. I mean, just powerful stories that people have experienced in their lives and just to bear witness with one another. And, but to bear witness also with the wisdom, if you will, and awareness of being a human relations expert, <laughs> which is what we do. And so bringing that to the table, but at the same time, just being with our humanity and everybody had powerful uh, stories to tell. Uh, So it was very evocative and uh, binding. I mean, there's a part of me that says I should just do this all the time. And so there you were, listening to their stories, therapist stories. Yeah. I mean, it just says that there's such, because we have a, what I've noticed in myself and, and in them is there is a little bit of a craving, I think. Yeah. It feels like we need to it. To tell our story. Like, what is it like to always be the listener? Mm-hmm. And it's not like we don't talk about ourselves and our love lives. And, you know, we, we do. But to have a real set time where that's where we're the focus and our own journey is the focus mm-hmm. of the heart lessons, you know, we just what's happening in our hearts and in our lives. And it's, it's interesting. And then to really say, and then this is what I chose to do for a living. It's important, I think. They say we heal with our clients, but we also suffer and get trauma or re-trauma from them, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How, how can we bring more healing than suffering and re-trauma to our journey as a therapist? That is such a good question, Annabelle. You know, when you, when you ask that question, I'm thinking of uh, a line that Mike Elkin has said, which I think is absolutely hilarious. Maybe you know what it is. 
I wish I could do his voice just right because he has such a delivery. You know, therapists are the only one who need 40 hours of therapy a week. (laughs) (laughs) So we need more therapy. More and more. (laughs) Totally agree with him. So I love that line of his. I just, I love his perspective on things. The way he has it unique perspective so we need more therapy but also we spend so much time sitting with our client and i feel sometimes that it's more that there are sessions that are healing to me and sessions that are traumatizing me i don't know if you have this experience also oh absolutely And I think that, um, you know, I, <clears throat> I started out my work working with f- families where there was physical and sexual abuse. So it's really uh, intense um, to be witness to the parts of us that can be violent and uh, exploitative mm-hmm. and, and deny it or not want to be with it. So there's so much that goes in witnessing it, which is helping someone find the safety to accept their own parts that engage in certain behavior. Mm -hmm. This is why I've worked with firefighters always, because I've always been exposed to it. Because the challenge of how can you work with a part that you don't accept? You can't. So how do you develop a way to accept that? So what happens to us around that is another question. So I guess the shortest answer, and this is really a clinical answer, not a personal answer. I don't, I don't know my personal answer yet. I'm, I'm letting it work around back there. Um, is when I feel like I can be useful. You know, when I feel like there's something I can do. So when someone, <clears throat> when I know how I want to be and can be, feel useful for someone, then I feel that uh, I am of value. And I do think uh, to hold on to hope, uh, I, I feel the, the gift of working with, um, we call them in the 80s, survivors of trauma. Term isn't used as frequently now, just say trauma, experienced trauma, but uh, Laura Davis and Ellen Bass, who wrote The Courage to, to Heal, about just a, a mm-hmm. Bible, really, for working and recovering from, phys- from sexual abuse. I think I feel that that community named themselves survivors as people who can flourish and move beyond. And that's inspiring to me. And it, 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 all, it creates a sense of hope and possibility. So I think if I'm holding that sense, and I think I can, people have impressed me over and over again with their resilience and ability to heal. And so I think it's to hold open that sense of hope and possibility and and, and feeling like there's things I can do that can be useful. And I think in that space, Mm -hmm. uh, I don't have to sink. Now, having said that, having said that, There are some people's stories, and I'm sure it's happened to every therapist, that just find their way inside our psyche, inside our our inner experience that are so disturbing, so painful. 
And I think that that takes work. So when I have um, a client like that, I do have to, I might have to go get consultation. I can't, what I try to do is not hold that experience alone. I have someone that I talk to, this is what they told me, can you help me hold this? So I'm not holding this alone. This is so disturbing. This is so painful. This is so, what happened to them was so sick or so painful or so de you know, degraded. And I have to have someone help me so that I'm not in isolation. I think isolation uh, is a risk mm -hmm. and therapists work alone. And when we have isolation, we are at risk. So we have to know when we're feeling at risk. And I think the short, short answer solution is not hold it in isolation. Whether you have a group or a therapist or consultant of your own so that we can, and to really honor our own, our heart with that. Having said that, the other piece that happens with clinicians, and I see it all the time when I'm consulting, is that we have to find the space of being present, but not being too involved, but yet not being too distant. If we're at arm's length, then our parts are helping us not feel, and we're not really present. But if we're too close, and we're getting very involved, oh, he said that to you? And then what did you say? You know, like we'd almost girlfriending it. You know, I would say sometimes just like getting very involved and getting very uh, protective of what happened, protective of their relationships that shouldn't happen to you, trying to be helpful. I think that that, what hooking us into that kind of relationship uh, where we end up feeling, that's the difference for me between compassion and empathy. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And we're going to get burned out if we're in empathy. Because empathy means that we're supposed, well, as I'm defining it, I don't know that this is the def definition, but the contrast I'm making is compassion is, I feel for you and I believe you can heal. I'm here to help you, help us together, help you heal. Empathy is, oh no, it's sort of that sense of they've been victimized. And people have been victimized, but I don't want them to be identified by that feeling. And if I participate and sink into how bad it was, then I can, I'm not in compassion. I can't be strong enough to help them hold the hope that they can, it can get better for them. Does that make sense? Totally, yes. Right, it's like your parts are, are holding some of their pain and, and so they don't have it all to heal themselves. Yeah, it's almost getting caught and it's, it's, I think it reduces our our what's available to us as tools, if you will, because we're so busy trying to um, <clears throat> help them. Well, did you say this or did you go here? Or we're so struck uh, by the pain of their lives that we can't feel into uh, that there's the sense of possibility that, they, that something could change.
imagine that your workshops and being able to share our personal narratives as therapists creates that an, another possibility for not having to hold it all. That's right. A unique group experience and a real true acknowledgement of, of what it is that we're doing when we're one-on-one. Right, Tish, because the other thing about it is, you know, we, we've all gone to therapy. <laughs> I hope to God we have. <laughs> But anyway, um, the idea of sharing it in a group with others that have are in our profession, I think, is a very powerful experience at all. At all, also, because I think group in and of itself is important. I think that now that I'm, you're saying that to me, Tisha, I think what's also part of my journey is spending time in a self-help group. You know, uh, part of that part of that healing journey is to tell your story. And so um, I think that somewhere that's in my psyche too, is the healing and the learning that you get. You, when you listen to yourself, tell your story. So whatever that means to you and whatever it means in that moment. So I think being in a group and being in a place where uh, a, a safe group of acceptance, and I might say for therapists, also a sense of, of, of people being with people who've borne witness to many, many things. There's some uh, heft with that, you know, that's a real strong cushion. And um, I think that that's a, also a gift of sharing that in um, a setting with others, not just one-on-one. One-on-one is completely important. But this is an extra thing. I always say groups for healing uh, are so de-shaming. They're so normalizing. So you are saying, sis, that somehow we can have hyper-responsible parts and other therapist parts that can get in the way and disturb the work and also burn out therapists. Yes. And also you said about, you told about isolation. So you are saying that having meaningful connections, social support, and eventually career development are the good ways to keep us away from burnout and exhaustion? Yes, because I think that our, the tendency of people who are attracted to a field like this is to have a huge sense of well, of compassion. And some of the stories I hear, so many people of us who are in this field have very early memories of people in our lives that we were helping mm -hmm. and uh, who needed help. So we may have learned to, to be in this position at four or five or very early times, very formative times. So our, those, if we aren't, don't have an opportunity to give some build relationship with those parts, we can certainly blend with them. And uh, we want to bring awareness to uh, that specifically, I think, um, is one of the risks that we would have that I think lead to burn to burnout. Mm -hmm. 
And in that place of self-sacrificing, uh, we, uh, we might do things like not take proper breaks, take too many clients, not handle our finances with our clients, clients as well, not get proper resourcing and, su and support and supervision, not taking that kind of time for ourselves. And so those parts of us might have started having to sacrifice their lives for others very, very young. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we're not as aware we aren't as unblended awareness is um, an unblend is a, is awareness right yes so we're not as aware as we think we are <laughs> about all that and so that's something that really comes out as a common thread i bet in in these workshops mm -hmm. it does Here are some common therapist parts that you know well, and I have them all too, that tend to interfere. And I want you to comment on some of them. The striving or agenda parts, the approval seeking, the pessimistics, uh, right. the caregiving fixer, mm -hmm. the angry parts. Mm -hmm the hurt parts and the evaluating or judgmental part. Mm. I have them all. Right, and we all do, because we're all human. In fact, it's so interesting that you just did that list, Annabelle, because I was just doing weekend five, which is about the therapist parts uh, just a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And I, again, I was doing it for the first time online. And what I do when I'm in person is I have the group participate in having me list therapist managers, therapist firefighters, and therapist exiles. I figured out a way to do this uh, in a group, having, you know, take out, unmute everyone, and we did it together online, and it worked out okay, and I wasn't sure. But one of the pieces of feedback we got after that was how normalizing it felt to have all of those things, like the, and every one thing that you just listed, Annabelle, was on there, have everybody listed, and how normalizing to hear Oh, <laughs> that, you know, to hear that listed and to, and to know that others could, I could identify it. So de-shaming. De-shaming, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's safe to identify that and that we have it. So just the naming of it is powerful, um, Annabelle. You know, there's a phrase of being attached to outcome. And so striving, caregiving, even anger can come up around when we have a part that thinks the outcome of our client's lives or their therapy, then we're attached to what that would look like or that we're attached that some, to something happening and it's not happening fast enough. And so we get into self-criticism, which may become some judgment of them. And <clears throat> so whatever, you know, when it's a, tricky business to say, what is my agenda then? And so to read, to make sure we over and over again, work with our parts to redefine our agenda to being present to what is and building self to part relationships. If you're using the IFS model, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. helps our parts not be attached to what there's, what it should look like. You know, we might have an opinion about this relationship isn't good enough for them 
or this is what this is not working for them or we don't we're having reactions to their some of their relationships with their brother or their or their family of origin they're too good or they're too too nice or you know so when our clients are making decisions that are hard for us or parts of us we get into striving judgment we can feel angry because these are real relationships and yet it's not our space to get our needs taken care of so where do we go with what's happening with us and that's of course our consultation and peer consultation, whatever we can have to do uh, available to us to create for ourselves is important. Um, and I think it relates to a sense of responsibility that many therapists had for he helping people in their family when they were young. And so unless we really examine that, we start to feel that we are responsible for the outcome of our clients. We are responsible for doing our best, our very, very best every hour. And we, to learning and see, there's a lot of things we're responsible for. Uh, but to know the difference of what we're not responsible for, I think is also important. Sis, do you feel IFS is well equipped to help therapists and counselors to take good care of themselves? I think it is, Annabelle, because we can have the whole idea of IFS. There's so much of an emphasis in IFS on working with our own parts. And but let's just say, um, <clears throat> psychodynamic, you know, for you know, psychoanalysts, I mean, they were in analysis as part of their training program. So it's not new to the field of psychotherapy that an analyst or someone in the role of therapist uh, would, would want and need to pursue uh, awareness of their own journey. So the idea of that, I think, has been in our field from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And people engage in it in more or less, more or less directly. I, we don't require, for instance, an IFS that someone have an IFS therapist. Many people, I don't know the numbers of how many people do. I, I, I feel like pe many, many people do, the large majority. Um, but just the idea of inviting people to be in psychotherapy and be in IFS psychotherapy, if, if you're an IFS person. But if you're not an IFS person, to be in psychotherapy, to learn more about your own family system, for instance, um, to, <clears throat> you know, if you're more body centered, to be able to track and work with how your own body parts show up in your body your own experiences show up in your body these engage sustained exploration of our own worlds uh is i think really important um whatever whatever our practice is and i think ifs helps us get uh quite specific mm -hmm. about learning the burdens our parts are holding Would you have some advice for people who are just beginning to, to hear your ideas around our, our own personal exploration of, you know, kind of what's developed ourselves into being therapists? Um, would you have any advice for people to begin to get in touch with their personal narrative? How, how to start to explore 
what what's made you a therapist and can you do that on your own do you should people start groups and I, I think it's not a process that's easily done in isolation. I do think that it, it a lot can be learned in a psychotherapeutic relationship. Um, I think just being open, staying open. I think IFS keeps inviting us to keep staying open on our journeys. Um, <clears throat> but to st- continue to stay open that I am impacted and I do have parts of me and I am impacted by my clients struggles just to, to be honest with ourselves we might think we're not supposed to be and we're not supposed to be angry we're not supposed to judge them we're not supposed to uh wish they'd break up with that guy <laughs> uh, you know um but to be honest with ourselves that we are being impacted is really uh, i think important and then to have uh, resources to go to with that impact whether it's peer consultation, um, a friend. I, when I first started my private practice a few decades ago, my friends and I were starting at the same time and we were trying to learn how to set a fee. Mm-hmm. And you know, our, and then, well, it's a proper fee and we decided a proper fee and then we set our fee. And then we made a rule because we kept lowering our fees. <laughs> and then she says, so then I lower my fee and then my client comes in the next weekend and they just told me how they'd spent the weekend in Las Vegas. <laughs> They could have gone to therapy for a year with what they blew in Las Vegas, and I just lowered their fee. <laughs> no social justice. <laughs> That's right. No social justice at all, Anibal. So we decided that we would not lower a fee until we had called each other first. So if someone asked to have their fee lower, we'd say, well, I'll consider that and I'll get back to you. <laughs> so we, we practiced saying that. Um, <laughs> because to, to def- I mean, we are all in our own small businesses in private practice. So we set the fee for our service. So to properly value our service and at the same time be available to people, this is not an easy thing to do. I don't think there's anything easy about that. So to have support around where your issues are and where you're going to be sensitive to clients and to know that and to get support around that, um, I think is really important. And I, uh, people graduate and then they go right into private practice. And if you were asked my opinion about it, I'd say, I'm against that 100%. people need to operate in a group setting in a larger group practice where they're getting very regular institutionalized if you will supervision uh, before they wander and set up put up their shingle and sit alone as I say alone in a room with miserable people it takes an enormous amount of wisdom and presence and judgment and integrity and uh, it's not the people who graduate don't have it but it's just to, to really appreciate the uh, emotional impact of this work and it is, I think, really an important aspect of being a good therapist is to appreciate that I'm being impacted every day.
So precisely, we, we are all exposed to so much relational violence, neglect and abuse, directly and non-directly, through media, but mostly in our consulting rooms, as you say. So we all carry a lot of violence fatigue, right? What protects you from exhaustion in the past and in the present? Well, first, I think I have gotten exhausted. So um, I, uh, I, I may have said this in our first podcast, I don't remember, but there was a point um, after about 10 years, 12 years, I don't know, 12, 14, somewhere in there, where I just, I was, I was emotionally exhausted. I was exhausted for my clients. I had stuff going on in my marriage that was exhausting me. You know, I was basically, to use an old-fashioned word that still applies, I was codependent with basically everyone I knew. Everyone I knew. I was trying to help and fix everyone I knew. Everyone I loved, I was trying to fix them. So I had a lot of those kinds of parts, and that was very exhausting. So I have gotten exhausted. And I think that's part of my journey, too, is to recognize the importance of all that. And was working with a lot of abuse cases and... Um, So I said, I'm going to take some time off. And my my baby, my girls were, you know, little, uh, you know, four or five or something. And I said, I'm going to take some time and just be home with them and see what happens. And what I thought would be six months was actually a few years. And I was not, I was so happy to just do my own work mm-hmm. and have my family be the only family, my family and extended family, you know, family of origin, be the only family in my head for a while. Mm-hmm. So um, I want to say first that we might get exhausted. And that's okay, because that just means it's time for us to do some work. And even if we're not free to quit our job at that time, I was married, so I had a husband and I was free to do that at that time, even if we need to continue to work. But in whatever way we can to make it a priority to say, I have to do my work. I have no choice right now. I'm not doing well. And so many therapists have such, can have a, such a hard time. I think I had to be hit over the head with about five things at once to be able to say, I'm not doing well. Mm-hmm. And I thought it'd be the short break because I didn't know how well I wasn't doing and how much I needed to take care of myself. So I think um, first accept that we are impacted and we might need to take time in some kind of way and or make our own healing be a very, very big priority. Uh, so I think that that's one first to say we might, maybe we can't pre- prevent compassion fatigue. Maybe we'll have it. Um, in fact, it'd be a great question to ask people. How have you ever had that? How many therapists have yeah. had those times mm-hmm. in their, in their career, their lives? Second, if we are talking about prevention, I do think, um, feeling confident that I can help someone is the most powerful, uh, relief um, that I have, that I'm, that I'm being useful, that I, that I can help them, that when I don't know what to do, I can go ask someone also. I think import, being a therapist, uh, Dick used to have the phrase, we're hope merchants. Mm-hmm. I think that the idea that someone can get better no matter what, maybe I've always been sort of an optimistic person or I have optimistic parts. I don't know. I think so. But Maybe that was also my role in my family. I always had, I would, my role was to be cheerful and have no needs. 
hard one. <laughs> well, I, I was good at that. <laughs> yeah, amazing. So. <laughs> I have experienced people with such powerful stories. I have learned from my trauma survivors that the human uh, spirit is uh, mm. so much more powerful than the wickedness that someone has experienced. they taught me that and so uh i no matter what someone has experienced i feel like i there's always hope that they can move the ball forward it can get better i don't some people are going to get a little better and some people are going to get a lot better mm -hmm. but i i do believe that people have the capacity i think in IFS, the way we say it is that people have a, have access to self and it's in there no matter what, that self is undamaged. So our goal is to help them have access to that. Mm -hmm. And in a larger sort of sense, I do think that is a spiritual question. And you may or may not be religious. Uh, I was raised um, Catholic and um, <clears throat> sort of progressive liberal Catholic, uh, you know, that believed in social justice and all those kinds mm -hmm. of things. But there were a lot of rules. But I, I got a lot of joy from my Catholic Church as a child. Uh, there was a lot of community in it. Not so much when I was a teenager. Um, and I'm not in part of a church at this time. But I do feel that uh, my spiritual life also nourishes me to believe that there is resource, that there is grace, and that we can access something beyond ourselves. And so can my clients. I had a client who used to ask me every week, am I too much for you? This is really awful. Am I too much for you? And every survivor feels this way because their life is too much for them in so many ways. And I would say to her, no, because I'm not the source. It's, it's coming through me. And, and when, if, I'm, if I'm overwhelmed, then I'll go physically to a source. But there's a greater resource out there that's helping us. Mm -hmm. And so these are things, whatever, that's my story. But other people, I think we have to know. The last thing I'll say about that is someone I read, and I wish I could quote him, but he said, the therapist, you need a lot of stuff in your room. <laughs> you know, like, you know, a lot of, like, like, you know, like beauty, like plants and like a pillow and, you know, and maybe in objects that mean something to you to be surrounded in comfortable and sort of meaningful ways. We need this when we're confronted with uh, the evil uh, mm -hmm. and wickedness and exploitation. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for that answer. 
Really powerful. Thank you. I appreciate that so much. Since you mentioned hope and spirituality, so the five P's of the therapist, aren't they enough? Oh, they're nice, aren't they? The patience and the presence and the perspective and the persistence and the playfulness, aren't they enough? Are they enough? Yes. I mean, I think, are they enough for, the, for us and for our clients? Are they enough in the room? Well, essential, I would say. But I think how we're resourcing ourselves is maybe the question that you guys, we keep coming back to in our conversation. And maybe that's, maybe that's the other key. Mm-hmm. Um, is, and I think the antidote The risk is isolation, mm-hmm. and the antidote is not isolation, whatever that means for you. And the, the safety, the place, a safe place to, uh, to be a mess, you know, to be as messy as we really are. access you know I can imagine that our listeners out there are going to be intrigued and interested in in some of the work that that you're doing with the exploring these personal narratives how do people access you in these workshops well I'm doing the for the first time I was invited to do one uh, I, I say for people in Toronto because although we'll all be online but it, most of the people are in the Toronto area mm. they've invited me to do one online so I'm gonna see how that goes yeah and it will be different because you know you can tell what I feel you know not having human contact will be important <laughs> and then I'm gonna try to do one in person again um, here in the Chicago area Uh, outside of Chicago um, in June. And um, maybe the outcome of this conversation for me is that's the polarity in me between my commitments to IFS, but my commitments to also, uh, I actually presented last year at the conference. That's my duality, right? I presented on addiction process, which is very important to me. And I presented on therapist stories. So I'm for me to, I, to find space to offer these is um, maybe that needs to be more on my own front burner in a certain kind of way. You know, I feel devoted to my IFS, specifically IFS training, but I am going to be doing a level three. And so some of, I think my thinking will enter into that there uh, in the, in the level three, but um, the answer is uh, let's see, (laughs) let's see what, Let's see what I do. Let's hope. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's, I'm glad you're, in, you know, the other thing is when I first put it out there, that is anyone going to care? You know, is it just me? <laughs> you know? um, <laughs> see, it's, it's so interesting. You and your mother, that's really cool. Okay, let's move on. You know, I didn't know. <laughs> you know, uh, so, uh, but I am finding that actually, and I did one up in the UK last year and it was 
powerful. Mm-hmm. Two women who had each had lost a mom to suicide found each other in the training. It's just the most powerful moment. We were all so moved. Anyway, there is that was also another place to go with this. Was, oh, absolutely. Is, is it, is it yeah. useful? We need it. And I think it is. So since we, we are saying, I'm listening to you, and I think we are, you are saying that we may need more um, therapists and counselors or practitioners, organizations, and small or larger communities of therapists and counselors and practitioners for them to st- not to stay or work isolated. That's what you are saying. Right. I think really, you know, what can you do for yourself? You can find a few other therapists and develop a trusting sp- space just to be together on a regular basis. Uh, I think there's so much healing in that. Uh, even if you, you just, in any, yes, I think that's really healing. With the intention of talking about our own process, that setting that intention for ourselves. And since when should a, should a therapist or counselor retire? <laughs> oh gosh you know what uh, or just take a break yeah take a break <clears throat> well i'm shifting my own practice from private practice towards consultation is not towards retirement but it is making a shift so there is that way of thinking about what try to think about something else is i am trying to make i am making that shift i think um i heard it might be uh, mona barbera but i think she said Uh, relationships, she's talking about couples, relationships are still viable when you at least say you're interested in your partner. Yeah. You know, well said. And so I think as long as our work is interesting and nourishes us, I could, I have my, one of my dear friends who we used to teach together uh, uh, 20 years ago, we started teaching together and then we had, and then we, she's 20 years, 22 years older than me. And we, but we started teaching a uh, an ex- workshop for women, um, on women in our relationship with ourselves that we taught. It was three day. It was through a university. It was a three day sort of elective. <clears throat> we taught it for about five years together, and we used to have lunch every Monday. Then for 20 years, we had lunch together every Monday. Anyway, she saw their clients until she was 84 years old, and she just saw <clears throat> one or two a week. After a while, she goes, "You know, I really don't like to play bridge." so i'm not saying we should keep slaving away but uh we have to find our own answer for that uh, but I think paying attention uh, your question brings up in me on about paying attention to our own needs that is always I think the challenge for those of us in these service professions 
you know, uh, to pay attention to what do I need? What am I feeling? How tired am I? Am I taking enough vacation? Uh, these are always important questions. And um, that I think we tend to uh, not ask quite as, you know, since we're in charge of our own, as I always say, I'm so busy. <laughs> But whose fault is that? I'm self-employed. <laughs> <laughs> Who can I call? <laughs> That's when take a break is difficult. <laughs> I better call someone about this. So, you know, and I think a lot of therapists uh, get into that. Wow, I haven't taken vacation. This is wrong. And so just really paying attention to that and of our, our own needs is, I think, uh, your boss needs to provide paid vacation. Are you ready for vacation, Annabelle? No, he's ready. <laughs> I'm learning that we having meaningful connections, good social support, and eventually career development. Keep learning, right? Versus isolation and no development. It's maybe a good. A good way to go to yes that's right to avoid thank you for summing that up that way um <clears throat> yeah that these we, we we were taught these things most of us in graduate i mean i was taught go get supervision don't go if you're going to go into private practice always have a supervisor i was taught that but i don't know if everyone was taught that and um, i think that relieving yourself of that level of isolation is really important So, Sis, thank you so much for sitting with us again and congratulations for the Level 3 coming. Oh, thank you. New Level 3s are coming through your good work. It was such a joy to be here with you, Tisha. And I hope we can keep meeting and sharing this model, our work and our lives. Thank you so much. Thank you, Annabelle. Thank you, Tisha. And also, I'm finding people are really enjoying all your podcasts. And I've listened to many of them and they're just fascinating. So thank you guys for, I mean, you're, cre you're doing this by what you're doing. These podcasts are creating connection too. So this is a powerful thing to do this for our community and people are really loving it. So um, uh, thank you guys for, for giving us this gift of being able to listen to each other. Thank you, Cis. Thank you, Cis. Thanks so much. We, we do have an incredible community here.